Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Cato Podcast. I'm really excited about this episode. We get to join forces with John Becker from The Debrief, where John and I got an opportunity at the Cato Conference to chat with Army Master Sergeant Earl Plumley. Earl shared his harrowing story surrounding his Congressional Medal of Honor award. There's just a ton of lessons learned there and some great takeaways. We hope you're able to, uh, to apply some of those in your own life. Thanks for tuning in. And I would like to take a moment to thank two Cato Gold sponsors for supporting the work that Cato does throughout California. Thank you to NAG Industries and Aardvark Tactical. NAG Industries is a premier provider for a variety of government sales products like Vortex Optics, Garmin, Streamlight, and many other brands. From breaching tools and training to the latest in pickleball gear, there's a good chance NAG Industry carries it. Check them out at nagindustries.com. I would also like to thank Aardvark Tactical, who's been a steadfast supporter for many years. While Aardvark is famous for their signature Project 7 scalable plate carrier system, Sejin Robot, Low-Key Drone, and Kinetic Breaching Tool, they also offer customized integrated solutions to meet a wide variety of supply needs, such as complete crowd control kits, IED detection, less lethal, and many others. To learn more, check out aardvarktactical.com. Work-life balance is something we all struggle with in our line of work, and especially with the people who listen to this podcast. For those of you who enjoy getting away by spending some time on the lake, casting a line, our podcast sponsor is for you. Cope's Tackle and Rod Shop has been in business since 2015 and carries all of your fishing needs. They are veteran-owned and are proud supporters of Cato and our listeners of the Cato Podcast. Check out their website at tackleandrod.com, enter discount code Cato at checkout, and get 10% off your purchase and get free shipping on anything over $75. Cato is a nonprofit organization that exists to serve law enforcement so they can train their departments and make their communities safer. One of the ways we do this is through support from businesses like Cope's Tackle and Rod. So consider supporting businesses that support us. This is a very special episode of the Debrief and the Cato podcast. Um, We are at the Cato conference and have the opportunity to sit down with Master Sergeant Earl Plumley, who is a Congressional Medal of Honor recipient for his actions in Afghanistan. Um, Sitting here today with Brent Stratton. What's up, John? How are you, man? It's nice to see you. Glad you're here, buddy. Yeah, it's good to see you too, man. Getting to be uh, spend a little bit of time together at the Cato Conference. Absolutely, with a legitimate American hero. My goodness, man. We were lucky that he came to speak with us um, and and to our membership. And I just walked away from his presentation um, impressed. And we'd done a lot of research on him. I'd I'd watched a lot of his interviews. I'd um, watched the citation presentation um, with President Biden. So I felt like I had... Um, an understanding of it, but um, hearing his presentation was uh, moving, insightful, um, and I loved, you know, obviously the story is compelling, but his thought process and how much he's put into dissecting and understanding what led up to that and in his his actions um, and, and what got him there, what made him successful, um, that was uh, what was most insightful to me. Yeah, I totally agree. We're we're very fortunate to have this time with Earl, and uh, hope you all enjoy this interview. Earl, I appreciate you joining us today. Um, we're we're excited to interview you and and kind of hear your story. No, pleasure to be here. Thanks for uh, having me. Why don't we start with, like, let's go back to the beginning. Talk to me about where your career began. Well, so my career began. Uh, I 
I decided to join the military as a junior in high school. I went to the Marine recruiter who laughed at me. <laughs> I thought I had discovered a, a, a glitch in the matrix. So I was like, I'll just get out of here, forget high school. And uh, turns out the military knows about that. You have to finish high school before you can join. But he said, uh, go to the uh, National Guard. Um, they will let you join now if you really want to. And uh, which was true. So I, I joined the National Guard as a junior in high school and uh, had a, a marvelous time uh, one week in a month, <laughs> two weeks a year uh, throughout my high school career. It was uh, a great way to, it kept me out of trouble mostly. And um, I got to go drive um, a tracked vehicle or a Hemet, which was what I was doing anyway when, you know, off-roading and playing around. And that's that's what I did all the high school. But it's not what I was looking for, so... Uh, as soon as I was able, I went back to the Marine Corps recruiter and uh, signed up for the infantry because the artillery in the National Guard was too easy. But he uh, he did he had a harder job for me. So how long were you in the Marine Corps? Uh, I'd have to check exactly, but nine years and, and some change. Uh, and what was your career arc in the Marine Corps? Starting the infantry? Yeah, I started off in the infantry. Uh, had a great time walking around with stuff on my back, uh, digging holes. I'm still uh, among... Uh, uh, my friends now, I'm without peer and hole digging. <laughs> they have never been professionally instructed. I have, uh, but served in the infantry, uh, later became a recon Marine and, uh, and ultimately, you know, after nine years in the Marine Corps left and, and, uh, joined the army as a 18 X-ray, which is the, uh, entrance program for uh, selection. You go straight to selection. It's a great program. If you make it, it's an interesting way to end up in the army if you don't. And so you obviously made it through selection. What were, where did you go from there? So uh, I went uh, after selection. I, I didn't realize <clears throat> that the uh, the Q course is a you know year and a half, two years long, depending on the job you pick. I thought it was selection. You know, you do this uh, thirty days of uh, arduous uh, assessment, and then you're in. Uh, no, that's just to make sure that you can actually complete the training. And then I I did a I think a year and four or five months of uh, the Q course, the qualification course. Um, which was uh, learned a lot, became a much more professional soldier. I, I didn't know you had to speak a, a foreign language as a uh, Green Beret, and <laughs> that was obviously I'm not a uh, deep academically, so that was the scariest part for me, having to learn, uh, learn and to uh, read, write, and speak a foreign language. But they met dumber people than me. They locked me up in a room <laughs> for six months with a very nice lady by the name of Ibu Maggie, and she, uh, she taught me how to speak Indonesian. So Indonesian was your language. Indonesian was my language, and uh, by choice or by assignment. Uh, they they took a test. I got to pick some languages, and uh, the, you know you know where you're going to get stationed. Um, and I had a, had a, a older GB. He's like, make sure your wife picks what group you work in because she's the one that's going to live there. You'll be gone the whole time. Good and, uh, good marital advice. Yeah, that's so, brilliant. So I my wife picked. Uh, she went to live in Colorado or Washington. So I. I wrote down, uh, I think, two Asian languages and one uh, European language, with first group being in Washington and, and uh, you know, centered on uh, the Indo-PACOM, and then 10th group being in uh, Colorado, working in Europe. And, uh, so, you know, we have a test that says which languages I would have a, a higher chance of learning to a higher uh, ability, and that one said that that is an Indonesian guy. That's interesting. It's mm -hmm. interesting that they have a system that can actually diagnose that. Yeah. So then you ended up at... Ended up at First Special Forces Group um, in Washington, and uh, it's been my home ever since. I've uh, I've never been stationed uh, anywhere uh, but inside a first group. We have a battalion four deployed in Japan uh, that I, I served in three years, but I've always been in first group. 
Which is Fort Lewis, right? Yep. Yep. So, so let's kind of walk, walk me forward to the event. You, you deploy, um, which theater are you in? Kind of give so, us the background. <clears throat> we, de- we deploy to, uh, Afghanistan. Um, you know, we did a, a train up in the, uh, winter in the mountains of Washington, which really had us set up <laughs> well to, to do a summertime deployment in Afghanistan and, uh, was, uh, chosen to do a, a VSO site. Um, it, it was in the, uh, city of Miri in the, the Ghazni province. So, so I'm going to play ignorant for you because not all of our listeners mm-hmm. are going to, I, we both speak, you know, acronymies natively. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to play dumb oh, yeah, the whole interview here and ask yeah, yeah. you to define all of the acronyms. You yeah, I am, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, village, uh, village uh, stability operations, uh, and uh, it's it's a program we had where to uh, to to kind of eliminate those safe spaces and also just to kind of um, back uh, add some backbone to the governance of the the uh, old government of Afghanistan. At this point, we put an ODA into a village and um, kind of let them create a police force and then help with infrastructure projects and just keep the Taliban out of those villages. So you'd, you'd lay down ODAs and kind of sprinkle them through, um, you know, every three or four villages you add an ODA and, and the theory, which it was fairly successful, would keep the, keep them out of there. And ODA. Then, yep. Uh, Operational Detachment Alpha, which is the, uh, kind of the base maneuver element of uh, special forces in the army. It's 12, 12 men. Um, they each have a particular skill set. And they're built, you know, for an operation like this. They they go on the ground, and you don't really need to support them other than we need money. And uh, if you want us to shoot American guns, we need um, American bullets. But uh, you know, we we bought our food uh, from the from the village, so we kind of prop up the economy of the village. Uh, we try to use as much as of their economy as we can. And uh, you know, it's not top down; it's bottom up. Like we're putting the money at the bottom of this economy, and and. Uh, you know, using it and causing it to grow. And, uh, and we plug in a lot of the programs from the state department. Um, you know, can you grow grapes instead of heroin? That would be cool. And, uh, there's a, here's a benefit to that. Yeah. I think one of the things that I don't think people realize about, about your unit is you are forward deployed into foreign areas and, and are kind of there on your own. Yeah. That's the, uh, that's what attracted me to it is we go, they leave us there, uh, and they would rather we don't ask for any help. Um, the whole point of us is the footprint's small, the logistical strain is small, and the output is supposed to be, you know, great. Because you're affecting it early in there in the system. Yep, and, and you know, and we're kind of, you know, the State Department tries its best, but they're, you know, you have somebody deciding what is best for an area, um, you know, from Kabul. When I'm there, I'm like, yeah, that that's not the best for this, for this village. They need these things. Uh, and we're going to, they need a drainage ditch. They don't need you to pave anything. That's not going to help. You know, what's kind of cool is, um, hearing it. This is a much more advanced version of it. And I don't mean any disrespect towards that, but it's a, it's almost similar to like a community oriented policing model that you would see where you're working on building relationships and, you know, hoping that if you can build these relationships and, and going to be able to keep crime out, so to speak. So you're taking that on a, on a much bigger, much more macro level. But as you're saying that, I, can, I see how there's some very similar uh, principles and philosophies associated with it there. No, and we, I mean, I think it's it's not just like it. It's it's heavily nested in it. We did, we, you know, have shuras and we'll have everybody come out. Like, what do you, what do you like about the Afghan government? What do you hate about it? And then, you know, we identify these problems. Like, well, we hate the uh, Afghan police. I'm like, 
why? And well, like, well, they set up checkpoints and you have to, they take road tax. You're like, they take road tax. <laughs> and we go to our like Afghan Mexico. police. They rob, like, they rob people. Yeah. Why are you, <laughs> like, why are you setting up a, basically a strong arm, you know, road tax, uh, People hate it. I'm like, well, we have to pay for our food and our fuel and, and uh, our ammunition. I'm like, you have to pay for that? <laughs> Why are you paying for that? And, uh, you know, our Afghan police were taking tolls and then driving to Pakistan and, and buying arms and ammunition to serve as a police force. And, you know, we're writing that up. Like, hey, where's all the money going? Because these guys haven't been paid or supported in any way in about uh, eight months. And, you know, they're like, we figured whatever the problem was, obviously some kind of graft. But, uh you know, we fix that problem and then the people don't get taxed by their own police uh, when they're trying to utilize, you know, public roads, which, you know, makes people like the police more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's fixing, it's fixing them, you know, it's fixing the, the village from the inside. Right. As opposed to trying to impose a solution yep. and, and, you know, one that they may or may not agree with. And that's, you know, also we, we try to do all that stuff um, and never actively participate in the discussion. So we, we want these things to get solved. We may move things, pull strings, but we want them to, to feel like they 100% solved it. And the end state, when if we decide to leave, we want that we have left um, systems in place that they are solving it. And then also, you know, let them trust their government, uh, let them trust their police, and not always run uh, to the nearest American soldier and like, I need this fixed. Te- teaching them to fish and then letting, letting them yep. pick the kind of fish they want to eat. As yep. opposed to like handing them a fish and going, yep. here's Un- your fish. Unfortunately, I think we, we got there about 400 years uh, too early. Uh, I have high hopes in a, a couple hundred years. My great-grandkids will probably be able to get that place really sorted out. Alexander the Great had the same hopes. So, yeah, there's a famous story uh, of an ODA, and they ask a village, like, what do you guys need? And they're like, well, we used to have a dam here, and it was it was really great before the dam was uh, destroyed. And if the dam were rebuilt, this village would really prosper. So they send the uh, engineer sergeant out <clears throat> to see this blown up dam. And we're thinking that the Soviets, or maybe we blew it up during the invasion. And he's, he goes out there and he's like, I don't know what they're talking about. There's no dam out there. It's like, you could build a dam there, but there's not one. And uh, so we go back and, you know, talk to these guys. And why do you, why is there, there was a dam? When, when was there a dam? Alexander the Great built the dam. Um, Genghis Khan, as punishment for the Afghan king killing his uh, emissaries, came in and tore everything up, and he tore the dam down, and he broke all the stones into gravel so that they couldn't remake the dam. And so that's how long they've been without a dam, And which is, when you think about it, if they just annually, sometime in the, you know, over the, past, down. In the past 500 years carried one rock out <laughs> yeah. there, they'd have a dam, but uh, they didn't. And, what uh, an amazing perspective, though. If you think about that, like to go, I have this problem today. Oh no, it's it's such common sense that this problem was actually from several hundred years ago. To th- I, I can't even imagine thinking that on a day to day basis that the problem was actually something created that you know that far previously. Yeah, there's a fantastic book called Prisoners of Geography, mm. and the premise of the book is he looks at all the areas of the world that have had extensive conflict, Afghanistan being one of them. And why, why do we fight over this area? And in the case of Afghanistan, goes back before Alexander the Great and talks about you know, trade routes and all of these kinds of things. And it's like, many times it is a structural problem. You know, he talks about why, why does India and China never fight? Because they have the Himalayas between them and it's too expensive to fight. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it, the, the chapter on Afghanistan is fascinating because of that very thing. Like you know, they've got a, a multi-year, thousand-year relationship with their village 
And, and, you know, many cases we show up and we're like, Hey, we can fix this in two weeks. They're like, no, I don't think you can. (laughs) (laughs) And we don't want you to. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't like your solution. Yeah. So, so talk to me. So let's, let's keep going forward in a timeline. So you're deployed ODA. Um, yeah, we're, and we're having effects and I'm, I'm having a great, I'm falling in love with being a green beret at this point. You know, it was neat. Uh, at this point, I know I'm never going to leave a team until I absolutely can't serve anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm just loving the challenge. Uh, every day is different. Um, you know, we're doing ambushes one day. We're doing um, medical engagements the next day. Uh, training the police, you know, one time, you know, how to collect evidence and and uh, not be awful. And uh, then working with our, our Afghan special forces and trying to get them up um, on, on pier with us. And, uh, you know, I never I have ADHD. So if we're going to do the same thing twice in, in a day, I'm going to start bashing my head against a wall. So I, I really... I really loved it, um, and and uh, you know my the team's small, so like there some problem comes in, and like that's your problem, go fix it. And as a, a young you know E six, um, that was kind of heady stuff. You're like, hey, go go solve this problem. I'm busy, and uh, here's what you you get fifty grand, you know, and uh, a truck, solve it. And uh, I love, and I just loved it. That's fantastic. So keep walking forward. Yeah, to, so to the event. I'm I'm doing great, and then you know my my. Uh, my sergeant major Tony Bell uh, flies into the camp, and uh, he's looking for me. And uh, you know, normally you don't want the company sergeant major looking for you, but at this point, you know, I I know that my performance has just been exemplary, and I'm I'm doing great work. So I'm like not afraid. Whatever he's about to tell me, it's, it's going to be a good job on something. I just don't know what. And it was it was terrible news. You know, he's he's telling me that they're closing our site. <clears throat> it was very successful, and that I could go home early or I could come work for him in the company headquarters and, uh, you know, no green beret, uh, goes to selection to do either of those things. So, you know, I'm like crestfallen. That's two like equally crappy things for me. But, uh, you know, I decided that working at the company headquarters, uh, is still deployed work. It's still in support of, of this war and, and, uh, going home is not. And uh, so I, I chose to work for him and, you know, left Miri and, and moved to, uh, Fab Gosney, uh, where I supported the, uh, the company headquarters as the uh, weapons sergeant and uh, started my, you know, my uh, nine to five, if you will. It wasn't a nine to five. I, it was about a, a five to 10 at night. Um, <laughs> work till you get, yeah. work till you exhausted, go to sleep till yep. you can't sleep anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, like one of my first things is we had, I think 60,000 pounds of fragmentation producing munitions stored uh, near the, the living area and the company headquarters because the, the fob had just grown. Um, and, but the ammunition plan had not changed. And I was like, well, you generally don't want to sleep next to bombs. At least I don't. Um, but everybody has a job on the AOB. So I, I, you know, I had to move it myself or had one other soldier help me. So every day we would get up about four in the morning and, and, um, start carting the stuff off and put it in a different area. But every day was some challenge like that where not the most interesting work in the world. A lot of it was, you know, backbreaking labor or mind-numbing paperwork. Uh, like I calculated uh, ammunition consumption for all the ODAs and projected what we would need to order in the future, which is is no, nobody wants to do that. It's, it's, I'm going to say a, that's, a, that, that was probably not part of selection. No, they did not have yeah. that. Nobody said, hey, at one point you're going to get to do this, forecast ammunition. <laughs> And if you get it wrong, you know, people are not going to have ammo and they're going to hate your guts. And I'm like, oh, okay. 
if you so, were, so give me kind of describe the fob for me. Like so how, how big a, is it? How many people? So you know, I don't know how big. It's not a well, how many people are there, but uh, it's uh, I think it's I think it was uh, two thousand meters by a thousand meters. You know, and I think it is roughly. It's got straight lines, but you know, think of jelly bean. Um, if you and uh, had a, it was a Polish camp. Uh, the the OD the ODB had probably you know 40 50 people on it and then we had uh, two teams um, that were living uh, connected to our camp so we you know we had you know a very small SF footprint on the camp as you know that's what how we work anyway and uh, I think there was a Polish but eh, I mean, a couple couple thousand poles you know and it was a really <clears throat> it was a hub as we were because we'd won the war in 2013 a lot of people forgot that we won once already but we were winning and leaving and it was uh it was kind of the first larger uh fob where you could actually um, ditch equipment as your unit was retrograding out of the uh, country uh, so huge logistical hub for for that area of afghanistan and uh for a unit that's leaving it's the first place equipment that's not actually yours you only need it for afghanistan it's the first place you could find somebody to sign for it so you could leave and um it's also uh, in the the city of Ghazni is kind of a a big deal in Afghanistan. Um, it, it's um, it's part of the old trade routes. It used to be a huge city, and uh, had some religious significance. Um, if you're not uh, if you can't afford to Hajj to Mecca, you're allowed to to do some form of of uh, worship in Ghazni and get partial credit. But uh, what what kind of got us in a bind was we um, generally don't tell anybody when we're closing a camp because the Taliban developed a, a really neat, easy win for them. So if we say we're closing a camp, they'll come in and attack it uh, very near to the end. So then they get to take credit for running us out of, the, of that area. So unfortunately, they figured out that we were closing Ghazni and selected us for um, a, very, a complex attack so they could kind of claim uh, credit for, for shutting it down and running us out. And then also they, <clears throat> I mean, rightfully so, if they were able to inflict the kind of casualties they were hoping for, um, can kind of dictate foreign policy. Uh, or, or, or the U.S.'s swag at it. Um, and, uh, you know, you figure if you killed a couple hundred American soldiers, like that would be front-page news. Everybody would be like, what is going on? Um, and let's get out of there. Everybody, you know, kind of had lost their taste for the Afghan war anyway. Um, so that would that's what they were hoping for. At the low end, kind of make the Afghan people think that they're driving us out. At the high end, uh, affect, um, you know, America's uh, foreign policy. Um, but we didn't, we didn't know that, you know, I'm just on the ground carting ammo around and, and, uh, um, eating chow and lifting weights and hoping that some weapon sergeant somewhere sprains his ankle and, uh, I can go take his place. And, uh, we always got indirect fire. Um, and you know, all the, I look back on all the precursors, if we'd really paid attention, but we were too busy and the, you know, the AOB, by its nature, is a support mechanism. It's not a kinetic operation. The poles owned all the land around us, which kind of kept us disjointed. Um, but we were, you know, uh, watching the uh, frequency of the indirect fire attacks on the camp um, come up to the point where, you know, I didn't leave the camp between 10 and 12 o'clock because the, the worst case scenario is there'd be an indirect fire camp or indirect fire attack on the camp, and I would get trapped. Because uh, the whole camp shuts down, and uh, you know you have a you know the regular army out there, you know strictly imposing all these these processes they have, and if you know I'm like I'm trying to get work done, I'm trapped um, across the camp until they open it, and they won't open it until EOD 
uh, inspects each of these rounds, and it's so if I'm going to get trapped somewhere, I get trapped on the SF compound where at least I can get, you know, a, a task completed. But it, it started, it went from being, you know, a, a intermittent thing to a weekly thing to a daily thing. And, uh, you know, we're thinking, you know, even then I remember like the, the, the big win is that they're closing the camp for an hour to two hours every time they do this. And it's just a harassment thing. But what they were doing was conditioning the camp. Um, to, you know, every day you need to go sit in your bunker. Uh, this is normal. Uh, also mapping out where all these soldiers are seeking cover and uh, also refining um, where these rounds are landing so that when they launch their big attack, they can, uh, you know, uh, hit key infrastructure on the camp, which they did. So they're the first... Uh, the first volley of indirect fire after the initial uh, breach hit the uh, camp generators. Uh, and somebody decided that to park the spare or alternate generator right next to the primary to make maintenance easy. Mm. When, you know, when one burned, it burned the other. So we, uh, we live without electricity for kind of a while. So you think initially as they're doing this, they're, they're basically scouting yeah, uh, they, and, and training. Yes. We, you know, looking back on it, we you know, kind of went after it and we, we know that they're, um, assessing, scouting, uh, each, each of the guys that assaulted the camp had a, a little card that was uh, hand drawn, but amazingly accurate. Like even, I don't read, uh, uh, the, uh, Pashtu, but I picked it up and I recognize everything on the camp. Uh, I can point to each structure and tell you what it is because it's drawn so well. And did they have people inside the camp also? Yeah. So we had, um, you know, even on the Polish FOB, they have a program where they hire Afghan um, laborers to do different tasks and, and perform things. And the Taliban just went and either coerced, recruited, or just caused their own people to be hired. Um, and, uh, you know, had those guys all over the camp. And, uh, you know, we recovered, I think, five suicide vests that had been hidden on the camp. Somebody put them on and sweat in them. And then for whatever reason, you know, they... they uh, they didn't receive the signal or see the thing that would cause them to, to conduct their attack, and they took them off and then just went and rejoined that workforce, which caused everybody to be, you know, nervous wreck for, <laughs> is that guy still here? And uh, is there any more suicide vests buried on the camp somewhere? Yeah. I mean, so, so they're basically, they're, they're building towards an attack objective and gradually getting more accurate maps, figuring out their fire, figuring out your patterns, figuring out where everything that's critical is so that when they do kick off the attack, yep, they can it's do. all at once. And they, you know, and it was bigger than that because they'd, they'd launched some attacks throughout the entire country and they're getting the, uh, the uh, critiques and, and uh, ARs, you know, after action review and like, oh, what is successful and what is not. So one of the, the first things, one of the first attacks, they, uh, they detonated the bomb and then the guys had to drive down um, from a safe place and the, the lapse between the, the, the vehicle borne explosive device and the, uh, the uh, little assaulters was too long. So the camp had kind of shrugged off the bomb and, and, and was waiting for them and, and killed them all immediately. Um, and then a second attack, they, they got much closer dressed up as Americans. Um, uh, but you know, if, if you've ever watched any of the stolen Bauer videos, maybe if you put your tie clip on wrong, there's a, there's a Marine out there somewhere that'll spot it from, you know, 200 meters. So nobody was fooled that these guys were American soldiers because uh, they a, had AK-47s, but their uniforms were wrong and, and slovenly. So those guys were all instantly um, neutralized without penetrating the camp very far. So you know they they're like, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna they staged in a um, structure very near the camp. 
uh, dressed up as uh, Afghan army, uh, which worked because when I first saw them, I was like, these guys, you know, I'm a Green Beret. I'm going to put these guys to work. This is my job. Why are they over here anyway? And then you know, they identified themselves as not Afghan army by shooting at me. Which is a pretty clear message, yeah. Yeah, it's in the intelligence community. We call it an indicator. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a clue. Yeah, clue. Police, police work, work, you call it a clue, yeah. I mean, a great detective, Earl. So, so yeah. how does, talk, talk to me, the, the morning of the event, what happens? So the morning of the event, and one of the reasons, you know, I was able to respond as quickly as I had is we, uh, you know, I always make fun of young Earl. Uh, he's a real knucklehead, and I pick on him all the time. But we took a picture for the uh, for the deployment on the AOB, and we're having a change of command, and, and I... I went full, full bore for the picture. I wanted to look amazing, you know. So, I had all my equipment, uh, had all my ammunition looking good. My rifles cleaned up. I have my, you know, my sniper rifle, and I took a, you know, great photo uh, right before the attack. And um, I'm, you know, I get distracted. So instead of taking my equipment back and putting it up in my room, I, you know, went to hang out with a, a buddy of mine in the med shed, and uh, you know, set all that stuff just outside instead of putting it up like a true professional, but it worked out for me. And, uh, you know, we're hanging out. Um, like I said, you know, both of us are kind of bummed out that we're on the AOB and we can't wait to not be on the AOB. And, uh, and suddenly we're, you know, both in the floor of the med shed, you know, covered in everything that was on his shelves because a 3,500 to 5,000 pound bomb is just detonated uh, about 700 meters from where we're at. Where did they actually detonate the bomb was it the gate or oh that's so that's what that's what kind of clued me in immediately that that uh um this was going to be different because that is a very common attack they'll drive a a truck bomb or a vehicle bomb into a gate and try to kill the sentries working there um but this one was um on the far end of the camp that's not habitated um and we had a flight line on it and this is about uh, midway down the flight line there's a long section of of of, uh this hesco wall and they detonated the bomb back there and then the chances of them, you know, killing anybody are, you know, extremely low. Um, there was, I think there was one guy running down the flight line who uh, lived apparently. <laughs> I saw him on a video, but somebody said they knew him and were talking to him. He didn't remember his name for a couple of days, but because he was about 200 meters uh, from, you know, this, this thousand pound, multi thousand pound bomb. And you can see him just get launched off his, he's out there running. Obviously, at the end of his run, kind of going all in, and you just see him get launched like a ragdoll off the uh, off the running trail. So they basically used a five thousand pound breaching charge. It's a, I would say, flashbang would be more apt. You know, they they got they needed a hole in the wall, which you know, a much smaller device would have built a. Uh, they they cleared out sixty meters of eleven uh, foot Hesco wall, and left a twenty foot crater under it. You know, like it was overkill. Uh, a couple hundred pounds would have made what they needed. So I. I think it was mostly to um, shock the camp, um, and also they they either by accident or by design, you know, the, all the alarms go off, everybody runs to their bunkers, and uh, you know those first few rounds came in and killed the power to the camp. So the the camp had you know two conditions for attack: um, Fobcom Red, you know, we're getting attacked. Everybody, um, you know, hit your your bunkers and get in there, and then Fobcom Black means. They, everybody come out and, and fight for your life because the camp's been penetrated um, and it's possibly it's being overrun. And the uh, the Polish command was not able to communicate that down to the, the guys in the bunkers. So they're riding this attack out in the bunkers. Uh, and unbeknownst, unbeknownst to them, you know, there's 
there's uh, 15 guys wearing suicide vests, you know, sprinting across the airfield, uh, coming to the bunker, coming to a bunker near you, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, up until now, their plan's going perfectly, um, working out really great. Yeah, because they've breached, they've, they've created their diversion, they've breached the wall, and, and now the, the 15 guys are coming in through that opening. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, at this time, I'm, I'm hearing uh, they had a base of fire set up, you know, which is, you know, to machine guns that aren't going to uh, penetrate the camp, but it's to provide suppressing fire so these guys can worry more about movement than about uh, engaging uh, U.S. forces or Polish forces. And I could hear that, and, uh, you know, I, I was kind of figuring out what we were, we were facing and, uh, you know, jumped in my stuff and uh, started looking for a way to, to get uh, over to the other side of the camp which, uh, you know, we had had a mail clerk out picking up the company's mail, um, and he uh, was not excited about being out during this. And then as he was coming back on, on 180 degrees from where this bomb's detonated, we had a hotel that had a, a good amount of foreign fighters, you know, about or not foreign or Afghan uh, fighters, and about 160 of them, uh, also with machine guns, RPGs, recoilless rifles, and, and mortars. And, uh, you know, after the bomb detonated nobody's really moving except for him and uh they wanted something to shoot out and he was the guy so he was super pumped not to be out there anymore uh, so the 160 they're they're friendlies or they're, they're no, no this is this is uh the, the attack was going great until then but we we surmised that they meant to penetrate the camp on at least three sides and uh there's probably more fighters but these guys are sitting in this hotel um just firing into the camp um and uh, there, there was another truck, uh, a 20,000 pound charge, and uh, the fuel pump went out on it, and the, the driver just got out and walked away. But it broke down, uh, I think, less than a mile from the camp. So we, you know, we're kind of thinking those guys were supposed to um, create space for, at the gate, because these guys are firing directly into the front gate. This truck's supposed to pull in as far into the camp as he can and detonate, and then these guys will um, leave the hotel and kind of hit the camp. Got it. Uh, but that didn't happen. They, you know, didn't do uh, proper maintenance on their vehicles, so they went. Yeah, their whole operation was ruined yeah. by a fuel pump. Right. Yeah. Fortunately. Yeah, fortunately, because you know, you know, as I tell the story, I'm like, if they'd had one more Girl Scout, I'd have been in, in uh, trouble because I was down to my pocket knife uh, by the time it was over. Um. Uh, but anyway, that's you know, I, I'm not unaware of this other than, you know, we get into a truck, uh, me and and my uh, two buddies, and we pull out of the camp and I'm like, well, you know, I'm in charge of security for the SF camp. I already decided I'm going to go get in a fight, but I mean, I'm going to lock this gate. Uh, cause we had a, a big gate and I'm like, you guys pull through, I'll lock this gate. And, uh, you know, that's going to be my, at least I didn't leave the gate unlocked and somebody just ran in here, uh, until these guys mount the towers. Cause I can kind of see the AOB shaking it off and everybody's doing what they're supposed to. Uh, and, uh, anyway, the truck parks out on the street and they start taking fire and, uh, you know, I slipped through a little foot gate. And uh, by the time I get to the truck, you know, Drew and, and uh, Nate are pretty excited to, that we need to go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're taking fire and they're ready yeah. to leave. I'm, I'm locking the gate up and, you know, putting putting my locks on and making sure my shoes are tied tight. And they're out there, you know, rounds bouncing off the truck and and uh, are like, you know, looking, where is he? <laughs> yeah. Cursing you, screaming yeah. at you, honking the horn. Yeah, yeah I probably almost got left. Um but, you know, we hop on the truck and, uh, you know, we start pulling away from the camp and we're pulling past our motor pool and it's, it's catching hell. And we're, we're thinking, well, maybe we'll go help those guys. 
but you know, there we, we can see them. Everybody's running around pretty animated and the guard towers are starting to return fire. And I'm like, nah, they, they got it. There's let's, we'll head for the breach. And, uh, you know, we start moving toward the uh, breach and that's when my company warrant and then a medic from one of the other teams, Matt Horde and, and, uh, Mark Colbert pull up They're uh, they're on a four wheeler giving us, you know, thumbs up and, and, you know, pointing toward the blast and, uh, we're giving them a thumbs up and, uh, yeah, we're going there too. Let's get after it. And, uh, and we, you know, headed down there together and, uh, and uh, it started off with us in the front and, uh, we, I kind of get to the airfield and, and we start slowing down. I'm kind of thinking about dismounting at this point. Um, and, uh, as they pull past us, uh, they, they start catching hell. Um, I can see them getting hit and I can see them, I can see rounds impacting around them. Um, at this point though, I thought it was the base of fire. Honestly, I, I could see, uh, that they were catching a lot of, of small arms fire. And I just thought it was from the, the base of fire that I could hear from just off the camp. Um, because at this point I'm, I'm still down this little lane and I haven't come out onto the airfield to really see the whole thing yet. I can just see them, you know, um, catching a ton of fire. So at this point, you think it's still external fire? It's yeah, because not we got, internal. Fire. Not internal, because we got there so fast. Um, you know, I just couldn't. I was like, you know, we we must have beat them before they got here, because you know there's still smoke in the air, and and we raced down there in this truck, and uh, you know, anyway, that's I, Taliban didn't give me their plan, so I was unaware of what they were doing, which was rude. But uh, that's okay. But You'll they, get them back. They yeah, they stacked really close to this thing. I, I don't know where, or, or I mean, it must have been a bumpy ride for them because, you know, they they were already 200 meters into the camp by the time I get there. And uh, anyway, we, we pull uh, around to block these guys from the fire. And then, you know, I see the Afghans, and, I'm, you know, before I have that split-second thought, like, wow, these idiots are facing the wrong way, and they're running away. The bad guys are over here. I'm going to jump out here and get them, put them to work. And, and that's, you know, they turned inboard and identified themselves as the enemy by firing at me, which, you know, got everybody stressed out in the truck again. <laughs> <laughs> they would, they would subsequently learn to regret that decision though. So well, uh, maybe I never got to talk to him, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I have my sniper rifle, um, and I'm kind of banging it on everything in the truck, uh, trying to get the dangerous end toward the bad guys. And I, I presented out and fire, fire one round and it jams, uh, I think that I had a, a, a SCAR variant. <clears throat> it's got an external charging handle, I think, that the charging handle must have caught on the door frame because it's like one of the most reliable rifles ever. It's, that thing never jammed before, never jammed since. But for this story, it jammed, um, which was a huge letdown for me. <laughs> um, so, you know, I've, I decided, you know, I, I know I got Drew uh, and Nate with me. Uh, they still got a couple plays to make. So I'm going to create space for him and, uh, um, you know, I pull my pistol and, and, uh, I'm a pretty good shot, but I'm better the closer I get. So I just started closing with, uh, the nearest group of fighters, uh, and engaging them with my pistol, uh, as best I can. And, uh, describe the battle space for me. How far are you from them? What, what, how are they set up? How so many, they're set how up. How many are there? There's, uh, you know, like I think back. I don't think all 15 of them were there. I think there's probably nine, maybe, maybe 12 were there, but you know, they were, they were, you know, uh, a semicircle around us. So they were all the way, the trucks kind of started the turn. There's guys all the way out to the left shooting into the driver's, uh, window and they come all the way around, uh, to my front and, and uh, slightly to my rear th shooting into my window. 
So they were spread out, closing towards mm-hmm. you guys when you encounter them. So they had the they had this particular lane was the only way to access the main thoroughfare through the camp um, off the airfield, and they had it marked on their little cards. Um, so you know, I, we didn't know what they were trying to do until later, uh, which which uh, they had to get past us to, for the, the to meet their intent. They had to get past us and get down this lane because right behind us, down this little lane, is all the bunkers where all the uh, soldiers who are, are seeking cover from this indirect fire, they're all in these little bunkers that are set up up and down the street. As, as best we can tell, they they all had 20 hand grenades, a lot of 40-millimeter uh, grenades for their underbelled grenade launchers, and, and about 20 rifle magazines, which is kind of a lot in Taliban um, equipping. And uh, we figure they're supposed to hit these bunkers, throw grenades in them, uh, shoot grenades in them, and then uh, ultimately, you know, obviously detonate their suicide vest at some point, um, and uh, kind of work down these. and And everybody has a different guess of how that would have worked out, but it would have been uh, fairly successful, I think. Um, especially, you know, a lone guy, somebody probably would have killed him. But operating in in a, a team like that, they'd be able to suppress a target and have a guy sprint and run and dive into the bunker, which is was uh, a tactic they you know later used on me. But you know, at this point, I dismount with my pistol. I start engaging as Drew Drew can. I think they had a some a plan that if somebody got wounded, they would detonate their vest. Because um, I, I put two rounds in this guy's rifle, and he kind of came off of his gun. And then uh, you know, we do a, a training. If somebody's wearing a vest, I didn't know it was a suicide vest, but we uh, go for the pelvic girdle. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm doing this wrong. And I dropped down to his um, pelvis and uh, fired around and, and, and just turned the turn the strings off, the, the doll dropped. And, uh, and uh, you know, also I'm super close to them now and, and they haven't hit me yet. And I, I'm obviously getting effects as I transition back and forth to each of these guys. And Give me know, distance. Like what, uh, what do you think uh, The nearest guy was probably seven, seven meters and the, the furthest was probably 15. Uh, so we're right, you know, I can tell that they washed today because I don't smell too much BO. That's close. That's yeah. pretty close. And, you know, close enough, I, I remember seeing expressions. I know when I got a hit because I'm looking at this guy's face and I can see that, that what I just did hurt. And uh, and I can I remember being, you know, uh, agitated, frustrated. And uh, so, you know, we're, we're, we're close. But now, I, you know, I've covered that distance and I honestly didn't think I was going to make it that far. So I'm kind of, I hadn't, didn't have a great after plan. <laughs> <laughs> So I was kind of like, holy shit, what the hell did it just happened? How did they not hit me? And obviously, you know, Nate and Drew have a different version of this because as I was, you know, running around with my pistol, they were both getting hit with everything that missed me. So they're they're fairly frustrated and don't understand why that happened either. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I didn't have – I never thought I would actually close that full distance. I was, uh, I was just trying to have as good effects as I could because I was just waiting to get hit, to be honest with you. And uh, once I – I got up there. I was like, "Well, I guess I need a plan B now." And uh, yeah, here we are. Now what? And uh, you know, I I grabbed a lot of stuff, but I didn't grab my gun belt. So I I was carrying a concealed pistol. And I only had one magazine for it. And uh, I have I call it my combat purse. I have a purse, and I keep lots of hand grenades and and uh, spare mags in it. But when I jumped out of the truck, it's it's in the floorboard of the truck, uh, which you know I didn't bring the truck with me, so now I don't have that. But uh, I had a hand grenade. You know, it's the next best thing I had on my vest, so I pulled that out and um, popped the spoon and uh, tossed it. And and uh, just you know, blind luck, I hit that that uh, fighter I'd hit in the hips 
and uh, he's just laying there still. Everybody, all the guys behind him saw that grenade and just, you know, got way much further away, um, which was the plan, you know. That's what people do when you get hand grenades out. They go somewhere else. So they turn, basically turn and run away. Yep. They all, which was great for me because I needed a little bit of time to figure some stuff out. And get some bullets. or And get some bullets. Yeah. Get a gun. I need a gun. Yeah, any gun. But uh, I went to work on my rifle, um, you know, we you know have a drill and I locked the bolt to the rear and stripped that magazine out and did my little three little piggies and the rounds fell fell out right away thankfully wasn't a bad um, a jam or it probably wouldn't have made it again and then put a fresh mag in and, and uh, was back in the fight you know the grenade detonated which is you know the guy did have a suicide vest on he his is the only vest that didn't detonate is the guy I killed with a hand grenade uh, just one of those weird. Like, yeah, the one guy that was actually exposed exposed to an explosive device, his vest doesn't didn't detonate. Didn't detonate, yeah. Because, you know, everybody else we were shooting, their vests were detonating, and I was like, how did the grenade guy not blow up? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but it did kill him, so we didn't have to worry about him anymore. And then, you know, I'm sitting there, uh, you know, going, you don't see that every day, and I start hearing, you know, pop, 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 and I, I can hear, you know, thump, thump, thump uh, behind me. And there's I remember ever since I was a, a recon Marine, I hate, you know, I sound like Anakin, but I hate sand. <laughs> and there's there's sand running down the back of my neck. And uh, and I, I look off and, and I can see, you know, to my rear and left, there's a guy in the in the prone with a, a, a sling supported prone position, uh, just laying them laying them in on me. And he's um, he's going for a headshot at like 100 meters. And he just had a, a bad zero and, and threw a few through like five rounds into the wall. Uh, just not. In me, now I knew exactly. I have a hundred meter zero on my gun. This guy is at like a hundred meters because it's where we do our wind sprints for PT in the morning. So I, I dropped to a knee and I held on the the notch of his throat and uh, pulled the trigger, and, uh, and he instantly, you know, vaporized off the earth. He was gone, which surprised me. I was not ready for that. Yeah, you're expecting him to be shot. And yeah. I, I guess his vest detonates. His, yeah, his, it's, you know, it took me a minute because I, I, we had Polish tanks, so I thought maybe a tank had come up and just decided to crush this one dude with the, the gun. Yeah. But they, uh, I start looking around, and they're not there. And, uh, and you know, it, it dawned on me that I had hit a suicide vest uh, uh, with a sniper rifle, and, you know, like, great, I have, you know, bucket list is complete. I've now uh, done every sniper's dream shot. <laughs> shot a guy in a suicide vest yep. and detonated the vest. Yep. Uh, recommend it doing, doing that much further away. If you can, hundred meters is still kind of close. <laughs> uh, whatever their vests were made of. I think the other thing is that they had a very hot explosive in it with not enough shrapnel. So, um, you know, later as I get exposed to these vests, you know, it was painful, but, uh, you know, the, I never got hit by any, uh, fragmentation of any substance, uh, other than, uh, one piece of brass from an AK got blown out of a vest and, and hit my arm, but you know it didn't. Unless I get a bad sun, sunburn, there's not even a scar. Amazing. So okay, Drew, so Drew has an opposite story. <laughs> so he caught every piece of frag on the battlefield, uh, ruined a couple tattoos. So you know that's my that's my side. His got a different story. <laughs> Everybody's got a different perspective yeah. on how things unfold. He's, a, he's like they were great vests. Every time one went off, I got hit with something. <laughs> But uh, at this point, you know, I can hear everybody kind of screaming behind me. I'm at this corner, so I, I don't want to go back to where they're at because uh, these guys will just be right on top of us. And uh, I'm not going to – I didn't know that they were just down there waiting for me. Uh, I thought maybe they were 
trying to run down to the airfield where the aircraft are stored and start destroying aircraft. So I'm, I'm going to go after them and uh, I'll stay engaged as far away as I can is, you know, my rough plan. And uh, I know like whoever is not out of the fight, they're coming and they're going to hear, they're, they're going to hear me. I'm throwing grenades and I'm shooting my rifle. You know, you know the rest of the rest of the guys I came with are going to uh, get down here any minute. Cavalry's on the way. Cavalry's on the way. So I start moving down that lane and I get about halfway down it and, and, uh, about, you know, five guys hang muzzles out and start shooting at me. And, uh, I start, you know, returning fire. Um, and you know, at this point, like the furthest one, we're talking maybe 20 meters, uh, you know, nearest, uh, probably 15, but really close if you have a, you know, five by 25, uh, scope. So I'm, I'm, uh, luckily I had a red dot on it. A 45 offset, so I, I'm trying to use that. You know, I'm shooting at them, and every time I put my rifle, you know, they're they're doing whack-a-mole stuff, so they'll pull back, and somebody else is shooting at me, so I'm trying to transition back and forth. And so they're ducking behind cover. Oh yeah, they they're using cover well, um, and even the guys who are exposing, you know, they're they're using you know, the Sealand containers and the Humvees and the the boxes. They're they're using it really nicely. Uh, really, only giving me like you know half of their face, mostly their rifle, and uh, not you know, big targets to engage. And, you know, there's more of them than me. So every time I, I point a gun at somebody, he, he'll just duck behind and then somebody else will uh, take a couple of shots at me. Are you in the open at this point? I'm in the open. I'm, I'm, uh, in my mind, I'm slowly walking, but, you know, due to, you know, using mostly adrenaline and very little red blood cells, I was probably <laughs> sprinting or jogging. Um, but I, you know, I remember still like working, working through this problem, trying to keep moving because I can see this, uh, this junction panel, and I, that's my goal is I'm going to fight to this junction panel, get behind it, and, uh, you know, have cover. And uh, But anyway, I'm most of the way that junction panel and my rifle ran dry. Um, and uh, I, you know, just tried to do a speed load, a speed reload right there in the middle of them. Not optimal, but my pistol is empty and my grenades are gone. And uh, anyway, as soon as I dumped that magazine, uh, the nearest fighter to me um, to slung his rifle, uh, sprinted toward me, uh, you know, the, the classic screamed out Akbar. And, uh, at this point I kind of, I know what's going down, but I well practiced, you know, I don't really have to think about this. Uh, I got the gun reloaded, uh, felt like he was hanging off the end of the muzzle, but he was probably, you know, seven, 10 meters away and, um, fired, uh, fired a few rounds, um, and struck his vest and, and detonated it. And, uh, I think, the junction panel ate most of the frag. Uh, the blast, you know, kind of blew me out from behind there, uh, off to my side. I wasn't out, um, confused. You know, I was trying to figure out. I was very comfortable for whatever reason, but uh, I just remember kind of laying there, and uh, I was like, "Why is there so much gravel in my bed?" Uh, I, you can hear that, you know, pop, pop, pop of rifle fire. And uh, there's another fighter has left left cover. And he's looking over his sights. He's got his gun like super low in his chest, and he's just looking, you know, right at my face, firing, firing his rifle, and all his rounds are landing about a foot low because he wanted to take it all in, I guess. Um, <laughs> he was watching himself be successful. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I, you know, I jerked my uh, jerked my rifle up and just hammered away at him and uh, folded him up. You know, he's the same distance. He's probably at that ten to twelve uh, meter line, uh, and I. I I must have hit him, you know, five or six times because I was uh, really getting after it, being aggressive on the trigger. Yeah, he's closing on you. Yeah, you're, you're trying to make him stop closing on you. It was an emotional event for both of us, 
And I, you know, I get back to my feet and go back to that you know, whack-a-mole thing I'm doing, um, just shooting at everybody that's got a got a head on their shoulders. When I run, you know, ran out of ammo uh, again. And uh, so this time I'm like, I'm not gonna do, I'm not gonna do the race again. That was lame. Uh, so I, I dump my magazine as I, you know, simultaneously turn off and sprint back to my uh, um, the corner where the where I dismount the truck and uh, get reloaded about the same time. I'm kind of dashing around this corner and uh, you know crash into Drew Busick, uh, who's been in the back seat getting shot, uh, bleeding all over the mail for the entire company. Everybody was pretty bummed out. Yeah, you know, my mom sent cookies and you bled all over him. Thanks. <laughs> but you know, he's uh he's had his own struggle. Like the one of the rounds came through and hit the child safety locks on the truck door. So he was climbing through all this mail and he's trying to get this truck door open and it's not gonna happen. Oh God. So he's he's trapped in the back of the car with the child mm. safety locks. Yeah. And then uh Nate that, that's literally like a bad dream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, Nate's driving. He got hit, um, and uh, we call it the nuclear karate chop. He got hit, and he had a stainless steel windlass on a tourniquet that he had up on his uh, uh, collar of his gear, and, and around has hit it, and he thought he got shot through the neck. Uh, so when I dismounted the vehicle, he jammed the truck into reverse and did a you know reverse 180 out of there. Uh, so when Drew finally got out of the truck, I guess he was confused about you know, which way is this truck facing now. Uh, Cause he had done the cool James Rockford, yep. uh, <laughs> J turn. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Drew, he saw me run down that alley. So he, he came running for me. Um, Nate left the vehicle. Uh, they got super lucky on their shot placement for killing the truck. Uh, they shot the, uh, battery terminals and the alternator. So the truck was, uh, kind and, of, and the child safety lock and the child safety lock. Um, three for three. Yeah. Uh, missed me. Um, at this point, Nate's still in pretty good shape. I think Drew caught three or four rounds, um, but most of them hit a truck door, a truck seat, so they came through as uh, more like Chinese throwing stars. Uh, so it really looked like he just got in a knife fight. It's not that bad. Uh, he'll disagree because he's had some yeah. very nice tattoos that are ruined um, at this point, so he's pretty upset about it. I think it's reasonable to be. Yeah, you know, yeah. nobody wants to put in a – all that time and effort, and then and now it's just this weird, flayed open thing. Well, and plus nobody wants to get hit with frag. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, but he saw me run down the alley, so he's he's coming. Like I thought, you know, like I knew he would. Somebody's coming, and uh, you know, he we crashed into each other, and I was like, hey, I know where they're at. Let's go get them. And he's like, yeah, let's go get them. So we at this time now it's two people. That's a team. We're doing some teamwork. He's on the far left of the lane. I'm on the far right. Um, we're moving down. Um, nobody's really shooting at us. <clears throat> but, you know, it's still, it's uh, indirect fire still landing on the camp. This base of fire is still shooting. So I don't mean to make it sound like it was a peaceful walk. It's still, you know, if we're if Spielberg was filming, we got plenty of stuff going on to make it exciting. And he's looking like he's going to step over this last guy I shot. And he's this guy is like uh, smoking. Like, you know, there's a, a little bit of smoke coming off of him. And um, and I, I I remember telling Drew I was like stay away from the bodies they they have suicide vests on, and uh, Merritt kind of stopped him in his tracks and he turned back and he's like what? <laughs> and <I was> like, <laughs> Everybody has a suicide vest, so you know keep your distance, be forewarned. Yeah, which you know he's kind of paused there. I'm I'm kind of edging toward this damn uh, junction panel again. It's it's the only cover in this little lane. Everything else is is a it's a. Um, 
open thoroughfare and it's all these sealing containers. So there's nothing really to hide behind. You say junction panel, you mean like an electrical box? It's a, so it's a, yeah, it's a gigantic electrical box. Um, it's, so it's where all the, the big, uh, like two inch cable from the, the generators comes in here and it gets dispersed out. Got it. Um, how so big it, is this? this yeah, it's probably panel. two and a half feet wide and three feet tall, four feet tall. You know, it's almost big enough for two people to hide behind, which, you know, comes up in a minute. Which uh, probably at this point looks to you like, like a, a... It's better than no... Yeah, like a castle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, pretty funny, the rounds that had come through it, because uh, it wouldn't stop a bullet, but it would hit those big heavy cables. And since they were aiming at me, it would turn the, the bullet, you know, like 30, 40 degrees. So the, they, if they aimed it, if they had just sprayed blindly, they probably would have got me, but they were actually aiming at the panel trying to hit me and it would just turn just enough to go around me and come through the back of the panel, which is you know kind of marvelous. It's one of those weird things. Um, yeah, I mean, this, this whole event is, you you literally couldn't script even um, up till now and have anybody believe this has actually occurred. No, not at all. I think the only, only reason anybody even remotely uh, believed this was, you know, it happened on base. So yeah. when they came back to investigate it, um, you know, they did like, you know, CSI, like you said, you were shooting here. Let's see. And like, well, yep, there's a pile yeah. of, there's a pile of brass there. And uh, I actually was doing a, a walkthrough for, I was on drugs uh, for pain. So it's, it was either Jim McConville or uh, um, Secretary of Defense Esper. But I, I was kneeling down. I was like, and then I got my grenade out and threw it right here and found my grenade pin. Wow. So I was like, oh, shit, I was right here, actually. And he's like, well, I mean, yeah, I guess you were right here. <laughs> but, uh, you know, anyway, Drew uh, is sitting there, and this vest goes low order. So it's like a blowtorch, like a gigantic blowtorch. It's like 20 feet of uh, flame and, uh, you know, overwhelming heat. Like it, it went from um, being, you know, spicy back there to just like you opened an oven door and you're looking in at it. So if Drew had stepped over him, he would have probably oh, been – yeah, it wouldn't, Extra have done him, wouldn't have done him any good. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, Drew hates um, things like that. So he came over to join me behind the junction panel. And uh, either 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 the guy's grenades started detonating or everybody just started throwing grenades just because. But either way, uh, we start doing the, the whack-a-mole stuff again, me and Drew. And we just, I mean, everything was exploding. Um we had a we watched the video of it. We're trying to count at least fifteen, probably more, like twenty, twenty-five grenades, because um, you can just see them rapidly exploding in this area, and stuff's flying out of the alley. And and it, you know we're you know Drew and I are having this little uh, chubbing fight where I want to get all the way behind the panel so I can shoot behind it, and and uh, he hates that because every time I dig my hips in, I I'm kicking him out the other side of it, and then you know likewise he he'll jump back in and. And kind of push me over to the edge of it, and I uh, dislike that intensely. So we're kind of, you know, sharing this thing, uh, like two brothers would, you know, share something, <laughs> uh, not well. And um, and you know, at that at that time, I, I that's when I get like hit um, in the base of my throat with a large heavy device, and I'm I'm kind of you know choked up over this uh, junction panel, and I have a called an admin pouch. It's just a big, bulky pouch, and you can keep like a notebook and a gel shot and a candy bar, you know, things you need in combat. And uh, anyway, there's a, I look down at mine and it's got, a, you know, a grenade um, wedged against it and uh, which it's not my grenade and it doesn't have a pin. So it, it's uh, amps the stress level up for me and Drew. Uh, well, for me, Drew, I don't think no, noticed it. <laughs> 
But for me, it was a traumatic event. Uh, I, you know, whacked that thing away from me. And, uh, and then I, while I'm messing with that, uh, something hit me in the back of the leg. Uh, and it's another grenade. I, you know, would figure it hit the wall behind me and then just ricocheted off and hit me. And uh, Drew and I were both trying to kick that thing out of there because uh, it's in the same configuration. It's not ours, and it doesn't have a pin, so we don't want it. And uh, we get it out of there, and uh, and Drew, you know, grabs me. He's like, hey, we got to get out of here. They're going to kill us. And uh, he's a pretty smart guy, I think. so I, I tend to go with what he says. And we take off running out of there. And I think we get three or four steps away from that panel, and we both just get um, kind of a knockdown by an explosion. And uh, I remember um, like he's trying to get up, and I'm kind of laying on his leg. I'm messing with my gun because I can't get my can't get my stock into my shoulder, and I can't get on my feet because he won't stop yanking on me. And uh, that's when I had uh, looked down and I can't figure out what's wrong with my rifle. And my buttstock's folded over, and uh, there's a there's a, you know an arm from just below the the elbow down has uh, smacked into my rifle and, and uh, broke the buttstock off, or not off, but you know broke it and, and folded it. And uh, when you say an arm, you mean like literally physically somebody's arm. Yep, just somebody's arm. So and I think he, he might have reached across his vest and um, detonated his vest and then sent uh, a, an arm missile at me. Or maybe it was just laying out there. Because after the battle, there was body parts everywhere, um, like you find when, when uh, a bunch of guys get together and detonate suicide vests. There's, that's all that's left is the extremities mostly. Pieces, yeah. yeah. But So, well, he, so the, the blast that knocks you down is him setting off his suicide vest. Well, you know, probably. It could have been a grenade. Also, maybe there was an arm on the ground and the grenade just, uh, you know, who knows. Uh, but there was stuff exploding, a lot of it. And uh, anyway, we, we get up, you know, Drew helps me to my feet, and uh, we end up back around this corner again. And that's where we see uh, Mark Colbert, because, uh, you know, I remember seeing him falling. I haven't seen him at this point. Um, I haven't even heard him, and he's... You know, he's usually the guy that would be driving it. I'm trying to figure out where, like, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm thinking that he's either either dead or, like, you know, grievously wounded, which I guess he was grievously wounded. Um, he got shot through the butt. Uh, he says it was the upper thigh, but I, I was in the hospital when he got treated. It's definitely butt meat, you know, um, <laughs> which hurts. But it, I guess he and Nate had got uh, um, Matt Horde, who was driving the four-wheeler. They've been spinning this whole time. Uh, getting him patched up and off the battlefield. So uh, he got shot through the uh, calf and in the forehead. But his, it hit the lip of his helmet and uh, stopped it. But he is not useful because uh, <laughs> he... Yeah, when an AK it, round hits a ballistic helmet that's not designed to stop an AK round, it, it does tend to pass some kinetic energy through. Yeah, that's what he said. Uh, so he was pretty confused for a day or two. Uh, but anyway, we're I'm pumped to see uh, Chief Colbert. Uh, he, he was from my team. He was on the AOB with me, and uh, you know he was one of the he was one of the guys that kind of mentored me directly on my team. He's a, like a, a GB I aspire to be, and he was uh, a part of my team leadership. And uh, you know I was like I'm glad, I was very thankful he wasn't dead. And uh, he's kind of a character, so he's like what you know he's kind of a gruff guy, and he's like you know what the hell are you guys doing? You know say do the same spiel again like chief. We know right where they're at. They're right down here. Let's go get them. And he's like, yeah, well, hell, let's go get them. <laughs> and uh, he starts limping up from his, you know, ostensibly upper thigh injury. Uh, i never seen anybody walk like that with a thigh injury. But, you know, he waddles around, uh, 
stacks up, and I'm about to lead us down. Uh, you know, Drew's taking that far left again. I'm on this corner. Uh, you know, you can't you know, have a good war story without a, a Navy SEAL. Uh, so we had one Navy SEAL showed up. Uh, was a Lieutenant Turnip Seed, he's stacked up with Drew. I'm trying to reload my rifle. You know, if you hear, I keep running out of ammo, and it's always been a stressful thing for me. So I'm like, I'm going to reload before we go around the corner. And I can't find a magazine. I look down, and uh, my vest is empty. There's no more magazines. And I was like, well, I better check <clears throat> to see what I'm dealing with here. And I, I pull my magazine out, and it's got one round on the feed lip there, which sounds bad. It's not that bad because I have one in the chamber. So I've got, <laughs> I've got twice as many as I thought I had, you know, so I have two. So you have the, the double Andy Griffith special. <laughs> yeah. Two bullets. But, you know, they're, they're not any bullets. They're, they're, uh, they're sniper bullets. So, there, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> problem solved. Yeah, problem solved. But I'm like, mm, pro- well, I probably shouldn't walk point. So, I, you know, I yelled, hey, chief, I can't go first. You, uh, you got, I'm out of ammo. You got to go first. And which confuses him. He's like, huh? <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? I was like, I only got one bullet. You have to, you have to go first. You're, you have to, you, you take point, but don't worry, I'll cover you. He's like, you know, oh, it's I'm already shot, so I can go point and get shot more. That's, that, that's your plan. I was like, well, yeah, yeah, you, you go first and get shot more. But yeah, he rolls in front of me, and we start to kind of, you know, push down this alley. Uh, it's at this time that uh, a soldier from the 10th Mountain, Mike Aulis, uh, he has run all the way across the camp. Uh, he's heard this gunfight the whole time. Uh, I guess he was in the MWR with his uh, with his guys. Didn't have any equipment. He just had his rifle and one thirty round mag, and uh, a can do attitude. But he's he's run about eleven hundred meters, I think. Um, and he sees us kind of easing into this alley, and he's you know, he's like, can I go with you? And we're like, yeah, come on if you want to if you want to come. Uh, this is the place. So we got thirty two bullets. <laughs> no, we got thirty two bullets. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we we ease down this alley. Uh, we get. Uh, we get to the end of it, uh, you know, the same thing. Pretty peaceful at this point. It's better than it has been. Nobody's throwing grenades at us, and nobody's really, like, shooting directly at us. Uh, the, the camp is still, you can hear stuff blowing up, and you can hear everybody on the camp shooting everywhere. But in our little spot, it's not bad. And, uh, you know, Chief is looking down. There's there's body parts everywhere, and, you know, stuff's on fire. Uh, the UAV compound had... Uh, I think like 500 gallon of aviation fuel for the drones, and it it has been uh, burning this entire time. And and uh, anyway, he's he's like, I think you guys got them all. You know, he we hadn't because uh, somebody heard that, must have spoke English, decided to make a, a funny a funny little um, dig on Chief, but uh, bounced past two hand grenades at us and uh, uh, yanked the lanyard on his vest and detonated his vest, which you know. Scattered everybody. Everybody wanted to be somewhere else. I remember like thinking, why is everybody running? Uh, been through way worse than this. And one of the grenades actually, you know, came, you know, dumped over near me. And uh, I'm back almost to the generator panel again. It's my spot. It's my favorite hangout. And uh, I'm like, ah, I'll ride this thing out. And I'm looking at it, and, and I'm like, remember, uh, I'm like, oh, I don't have iPro on. I probably shouldn't look at it when it goes off. So I remember turning my head. <laughs> Safety first. Safety first, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when you're going to stand by a grenade. Don't look at it. Important safety tip, wear eye protection. Right. Uh, which is just, you know, at this point, not thinking uh, completely uh, clear and, and uh, figuring out what's really going on in the world. But it did. It detonated and it hurt. I remember it, like in my bones it hurt. Uh, but nothing hit me. And uh, yeah, man. 
guess I was right about that one. That's a win. <laughs> you know, I start hearing uh, fire again uh, from behind us. We didn't know this is the last fighter. Uh, has run all the way around. Uh, he's uh, shooting the guys up in the back of this thing. You know, I guess he hit Mike and he hit uh, uh, this Polish lieutenant. His name escapes me at the moment. But they, they're both uh, catching hell uh, and, you know, returning fire. I fire my last two bullets um, and Drew fired a few rounds at him. And uh, either we hit his vest and detonated him uh, or uh, we hit him and then he uh, uh, is detonated his vest. Either way, his vest detonates and um, it blew Mike Aulis, uh from where he was uh, kind of toward the end of the, of the lane where we started uh, most of the distance to me. How far do you think that is? It probably blew him, blew him probably. Clock, 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 clock. And, and, you know, he was right, uh, choked up against this guy. So he pretty much tamped that charge. And, you know, at this point I have uh, no ammunition. Uh, I got my pocket knife out and I'm kind of dancing around with this knife. And it occurred to me that's there's probably more useful ways to spend your time than knife fighting um, suicide bombers. So, I, you know, I was like, I know Mike's going to be injured. I didn't know who he was at this point. I just knew he was a U.S. soldier. But I know he's going to be injured. Uh, so I ran over and, and uh, um, grabbed him and uh, attempted to uh, – tried to grab him by his collar, but he, he had a stretchy shirt on, so I just, you know, pulled it off and it was just stretching way out. So I was like, oh, shit, I'll figure this out another way. Um, and I reached down and I grabbed him by the belt buckle and um, kind of just picked him up and shuffled him into this uh, UAV compound and uh, started treatment on him. And, you know, he's in a bad way. I had an IFAC, and, and what he really needed was a hospital. And lucky for him, you know, we're on a fob, and I can see the hospital from here. Um, so I grabbed a, uh, a contractor for the UAV compound. He's sitting back there um, hanging out next to a generator. And they had a, a little Suzuki mule, and uh, he got it fired up. We loaded Mike up and uh, got him, you know, got him to the hospital pretty quick after he was wounded. Unfortunately, he did you know, succumb to his, his uh, injuries and, and died uh, that day in uh, uh, Gosney. Now I'm, now I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do because you know, I'm alone again because my friends keep running off um, and abandoning me, and you know, I send away the only friend I had, this contractor. But uh, you know, I, in the Q course, they, in the weapons uh, side, you know, to become a weapons sergeant, they have light weapons, and it's the annoying part. And taking these guns apart, putting them back together, and, and it's a high-stress thing. And the, they have all these, you know, like you're going to be on the battlefield and have to assemble a gun at night covered in honey. And I'm like, I don't think so. I'm a combat veteran. I, this has never come up. So I hate this part of the story. But I went, you know, I went and grabbed a, an AK, and it had a, a really nice uh, 30 caliber hole through the bolt. Uh, and the... Uh, the operating rod is like shattered off of it. So they don't work like that, even as reliable as AKs are. And I throw it down, I grab another one, and it's got nine mil rounds through the uh, top of the magazine, but it has blown the magazine out, which has stretched the receiver apart. And they don't work like that either. But uh, I was like, well, this one's got a good bolt. So I stripped that one out, go back and put an AK together and um, got it. Um, I start grabbing magazines and, and grenades and um, trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And, and uh, my, the incoming commander, uh, we had a change of command that day, runs up. And he's like, Earl, what the hell are you doing? And you know, I kind of tell him about my day and try to get him involved with my plan to, to run off base and attack this base of fire. And he's like, well, the Poles have tanks here. We'll probably just let them do that. 
let's go back to the camp. And he, you know, takes me back to the AOB. And, uh, you know, that was the end of my day. So at this point, after all that, you're ready to go off the base and go attack the base fire at the other facility. Uh, yeah, well, there was, there was, uh, they were Taliban out there. <laughs> but in the process, validated the Q course. I mean, you weren't covered in honey, but. Yeah, I'm like, yep, yep. So if you're in the Q course right now, you know, yeah, maybe one time you might have to put guns together in, in combat on the battlefield. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because as you're going through, I hear you referencing training, Q course, prior experiences. How much of your training kicked in without you really having to think about it as this happened? All of it. So uh, every every instance, the actions, I didn't take actions. I, I executed um, rehearsed activities that had been trained into me uh, relentlessly. So I didn't decide to pull my pistol out because my rifle jammed. Like it was a, it was a auto reflex. As soon as the rifle didn't recoil properly, uh, it, re it registered that the rifle was down. And then uh, by the time I really uh, cognitively figured that out, my pistol was already out. Um, when, when I had to reload, you know, that, that process started cause I, you know, I, uh, trained so, so much that I, when I felt that bolt locked to the rear, there was already a magazine coming and the old one needed to be out of the way cause they are, they're passing each other in the sky. Um, so which, Really, you know, I always tell people the only thing I'll own is is the uh, the will to engage with the enemy. All the success that that I enjoyed on that um, battle was for the training I'd received, and you know, good training that was uh, you know well thought out, and you know, being in an organization that won't leave well enough alone. You know, I had peers that were like, well, you know, you didn't really do that that great. It was executed kind of poorly. You should uh, you should do that one again. And uh, you know, being humble enough to like listen to guys tell me like that I wasn't the best. And uh, to be, you know, become the best, but yeah, obviously every everything I had uh, executed on that battlefield was something I had trained at um, before, uh, many many times. So your responses were automatic, at least at a, at, a, at a technique level. Those responses had become automatic for you. Absolutely, yeah. I, I didn't have to. Uh, I could concentrate on other things because I didn't have to come up with a uh, what to do. My body was just reacting to that. Do you think that that facilitated you not being overcome by the events? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, if I had to figure out that my rifle's jammed and I need to pull my pistol out, uh, if I need to, if I had to think through why I don't have ammunition in my rifle currently, I think that um, not having those ready-made solutions kind of providing me a, a tool to use against the enemy uh, obviously, you know, held my uh, psyche together. I'm going to guess also that as, as, I mean, you obviously, but you were exposed to multiple blasts, right? I mean, your, your sequence of explosions. At some point, I'm going to guess that you're you're no longer, you know, able to do advanced mathematics. Yeah, as, I mean, as you're moving, you can, you know, if you if you notice that the the person that decided to stand next to the grenade so they didn't have to run somewhere, that that is not a brilliant mind. Uh, <laughs> eye protection. He was wearing eye protection. Oh, right. wait, no, he turned his head. Never. No, mind. and I can uh, through the battle when I I start the battle very clear and I can remember seeing, uh, you know, further off into the camp. And then, uh, you know, as, uh, as the battle progresses, my little circle of cognitive recall, it, it gets closer and closer and closer. Um, to the point, um, uh, when, when Drew and I were, were getting grenaded at a certain point, I remember, I, I know that I was engaging, uh, something, you know, right. But in, in my memory, all, all I can kind of see is, uh, 
the rear of my rifle, the red dot, and the brass. I, I have a, a astounding memory of the brass coming out of the rifle. I can't remember what was in front of me at all. And, uh, and that's where I can kind of tell how much stress I was under through the battle is, is uh, kind of how far away I could see, um, which I recognize because it's, it's, a, it's an evaluation of how competent you are uh, for free fall. The instructor, first thing on the ground, he's like, what did you see? And if you saw nothing, that's bad because, I mean, you, know, you were really in your own head. Uh, when guys get a few jumps, they remember their altimeter, you know, which is about eight inches from their face. So you'll see guys have a, a very good, the whole jump, they just remember the dial spinning on that altimeter. And then when somebody is really competent in the air, they'll, they'll remember, well, I saw the instructor, and then uh, there was a mountain and a lake uh, off to, the, you know, to your rear. And that's uh, as you kind of get inoculated to, to uh, stress and fear, you'll start taking in those, those details. So that's kind of, you know, I know I was kind of um, maxed out for what uh, stress and uh, fear I could kind of, deal with because at that point I couldn't see past, you know, the, the rear aperture of my rifle. You know, one of the things that um, you touched on was you felt like the training had come from people that were being um, honest with you and saying, Hey, you're not performing very well here. I'm guessing in a training environment when you were, when you were getting that feedback, it, I would imagine that there's a lot of really cool things to break down there that you have the organizational culture at that point that somebody is willing to be able to say that. And then you touched on, too, the humility to be able to accept that and then that drive to be able to continue to train and build those repetitions, and then you, you saw it play out. So oftentimes when we talk about accountability, when we talk about standards, those are just kind of words that people use. Oftentimes it's used with supervision. Or I'm going to hold somebody accountable, right? But we're talking about some line-level lateral accountability truly with your team and being able to say, Hey, you're not performing well here. You need to work on this. And I could see a lot of people shutting down and nobody wants to work on the things that they're, they're not, they're yeah, not nobody, good at. Yeah. It's not comfortable to embrace weakness. Right. You know, I'd rather, I would rather obviously uh, go out and just nail the things I'm really good at. Um, so, you know, to, to, you know, take stock and look in the mirror and be like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, throw myself on the altar of, uh, humble pie and go and fail at this until I'm good at it is, is a hard thing to do. And I think, you know, SF has a good culture where like people will respect that and, uh, uh, you know, kind of honor your like, you know, well, at least you're out here. Yeah. Uh, and that's great to be able to, to build that culture. And that's something that, you know, would, you know, organizationally, I would love to make sure that we're, we're building that in each of our organizations, but I don't know that, um, at, at, we always see that oftentimes you see, well, I'm, I, I'm not the sergeant. Um, that's not my job. Uh, I don't want to be the one that goes and, and does this, but really being able to step up and do that, I thought was um, was really interesting that you said that. It's, those are things that we're I'm keen on. Yeah, I'm, and you know, I we were talking earlier. I guess you know, rehash my. Uh, a lot of people are like, "Wow, it's it's great. That's amazing that you did that. I couldn't do that." I'm like, "Well, let me tell you about Earl's first gunfight, um, and you know, driving into a, a city at night in Iraq, and wasn't even that bad." Nobody was shooting at me, but they were shooting at things. I, you know, luckily, you know, Browning makes a very sturdy gun because I was trying to pull that thing off the truck uh, and uh, get sitting so low in the truck that there I couldn't see anything. If I'd had to react, there's there's no doubt in my mind I would not have. I was I was wanting to be anywhere else, uh, but then that gun truck, and uh, but you know I had some really good leaders, and and I think uh, that, you know are noticing. 
that I, that I was kind of, you know, down here thinking about myself, um, wishing I'd gone to law school and, you know, just giving me like small tasks to, to get me outside of my own head and, um, you know, not important tasks, but, you know, uh, asking me if I had my flares ready for escalation of force, asking me if, uh, the truck behind us was still there and I'm like forcing me to kind of get out and participate in the, the battle, not in a meaningful way, but in a way that just kind of kept me, um, engaged, engaged. Yeah. And then once I, you know, you'll get comfortable with anything if you're there long enough. So like, you know, once I realized that I wasn't going to die immediately, I, you know, started coming up out of my little turtle shell and, you know, luckily that was a, a pretty, um, one-sided fight. Uh, by the time we kind of got there, it was all over and I never really got engaged, but you know, I'm like, that was my first gunfight. I, I was, if I hadn't been strapped into the truck, I, w- I was definitely ready to run somewhere else. What do you think? So, so from from that Earl to Medal of Honor Earl, what what happens there? What so, what what changes in you? So every, <clears throat> um, and I th- also you know I got really lucky in that I had a very what low escalation of violence. So uh, you know you know gunfights that were overwhelming on my side. Um, very little return fire, and then and then you know gradually they, they got worse and worse, and and as I went through. But each time, you know, I started getting confidence. You know, it's one thing to uh, you know you train martial arts your whole life. If you've never actually fought somebody, you don't really know. And uh, to to kind of see my training um, function on the battlefield, um, and to and to you know after you you've uh, survived a few gunfights, uh, and then you're like the reason that we were successful is these things that we had practice and training. And it validated the training. I'm like, I, I just have this confidence that, uh, that I'm, you know, ready for for anything. And and uh, and I think after you know Gosnia, I'd never, I've never, you know, been like stand alone in the face of the enemy before. But uh, there's a very common nightmare that uh, that uh, combat veterans have. And uh, there's if there's you know they both I've had both of them or I used to have both of them. And one, the bad guys, you shoot them. And that they don't die. They don't go down. Yeah, they don't go. They don't go the, down. The Michael Myers nightmare. Yeah, or they fall down and they get right back up. And uh, you're you're on the battlefield and you're shooting these guys and they just they don't die and they keep coming and then eventually you're you're overrun. And then the other one is uh, you know being on the battlefield without ammunition. Yeah, or, or no gun. Yeah, right. So it's you, like you that, played out both of those. So I, I played out both of those, but I've never had that nightmare again after that day. That's funny. Yeah. Cops have the same thing, right? About yeah. about shooting and running out of ammunition and not being there. And when you're telling this story, um, you know we had the we were fortunate to be able to hear you present it uh, a little earlier and hearing it again today. That's what all I kept thinking is, man, you are playing out everybody's nightmare, worst nightmare. Man. Yeah, it's the old going to school without pants uh, thing. You did that too. I though, did right? that. Too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, we're not uh, talking about that. Yeah, we're, we're this is we keep this on uh, combat and training, but. Uh, <laughs> No, that's you know, it's a very very common thing, and uh, and then after that day, you know, you know, I went and looked at what would I have done different. You know, there's, I could have come better prepared. I could have bought a different rifle um, if I could see the future. Um, I wish I'd had my gun belt on, but you know, I you know habitually with the labor I was doing, a gun belt does not help with you know manual labor. You know, I, I I did the best I could with how I would have come, and I, and when I really looked in the mirror, I was like, I wouldn't really wouldn't really have changed anything. Um, I still think the 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 fight I anticipated, you know, being having to shoot way off the camp, or being asked to support another team, 
you know, the sniper rifle kind of lended itself to, to like being that thing and, and, uh, and then, you know, surviving that battle. And I would say strictly off of uh, the training and then the, the tactics that I've been taught like, gave me like a really high level of confidence. Is there anything that, and maybe this is too strong of a word, and I certainly mean no disrespect to it, but um, the word that comes to mind is in the weeks leading up to the assault, would you term uh, as complacency of getting used to the assaults that were coming daily and then you could set your watch by how often they were coming? And is there anything that you even would have been able to do so, offensively to be able to to impact that? So, you know, we looked back at that. What could we have done different? Um so the AOR that we were in was not ours. So we were staged there just for logistical reasons. So we, we had no right. If we had found out that these guys are, are doing this a camp uh, attack, um, U.S. Special Forces would have had no right to go out and, and gotcha. prosecute this. Um, and, and nor would we ever waste any of our time uh, trying to solve that mystery uh, because the that was you know, we have a coalition partner, the Poles. That's theirs. And then uh, you know we had some intelligence indicators they painted the picture that they were also solving. So they had their their picture. They knew that the camp was going to be attacked that day. Uh, they didn't know it was going to be a spectacular attack. You know, they went. They sent a, a two-man sniper team to the hotel to what they thought stop a team from emplacing a, um, either a recoilless rifle or a rocket or some sort. And, and that was their big plan because they had kind of picked up some intelligence that there would be an attack. Obviously, they underestimated it vastly. And on the other hand, we knew <clears throat> that somewhere in you know that quarter of Afghanistan, there was going to be a spectacular fob attack because we could see them sucking up all this uh, support to support it. You know, like the uh, a twenty thousand pound bomb, and then two you know five thousand pound bombs. That's that's a vast amount of explosives. So we could see them um, gathering the stuff up, the munitions that they were moving around. We knew there was going to be a spectacular attempt. And I guess if we'd ever sat down uh, and just disregarded the other work we'd been given, we, we might have figured that out. But we had no cause to do it. Uh, we were doing our job in our areas of Afghanistan, and they were, they were running theirs. And I think, you know, um, it's just one of those, the battlefields are messy, and the enemy gets a chance to kill you. You can mitigate it as best as you want. Um, but at the end of the day, they they get a vote and how the battles go. Yeah, it's like a suspect gets a vote. Yeah. 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 So, so from a lessons learned standpoint and things that you think are actionable for other units, what looking back at this, you talk about stress inoculation. Mm -hmm. How would you now on the heels of this explain to other people building stress inoculation and, and how did this event change the way that you viewed that? So, um, I had always been trained in a manner that was stressful and that's different. You know, as you get older and more competent, the stress is different. So as a, like a young, a young private, it just takes a, a sergeant yelling at him. Um, and that's stressful, you know, that, that causes a, a ton of problems for him. And then for like my, my operators, um, the, the closest thing I can get is to like physically fatigue them. Uh, it's, it's very common to, before we do a stress shoot, have a guy run a mile in his, in his gear. And then I also like pepper spray and, and tasers. Um, cause even if somebody thinks that there's a chance that they're going to get tased, you'll see them, uh, act in a very different manner, cause especially if they've been tased once before. So you'll unexpectedly tase them. Well, I'll tell them that, Hey, we're doing training today and, and somebody's getting tased. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> could be you, could be somebody yeah. else. Whoever shoots the lowest score gets tased today. That, that's always a fun one. <laughs> um, 
but you know, it's uh, it's it's one of those things. I I find that when somebody's physically exhausted, like to the point of like uh, muscle failure, that closely mimics their combat performance because you know in combat, uh, different processes are taking place. But a lot of them, you know, the racing heart from from the, all the adrenaline in your system, um, the fear, and just the uh, you know that over that you know, preponderance of emotions that are coming in, you get the same physical performance from just like running a guy ragged. You know, that's how good he is. So if you you know think I, on a, any given day I, at 50 meters, I'm I'm very competent with a pistol. Uh, I can you know I can just you know beat a ten ring to death, but somebody stands down there with one bullet and they're going to shoot it back. Like that's a tough shot for me. Um, and I'm, you know, that and I'm a high level performer. So you, you think, uh, you, and you look at statistics, they kind of bleed that out that these gunfights will happen inside of 10 feet. And, you know, two guys will wail away at each other and shoot, you know, seven, eight rounds. And, and there's one hit and, you know, they weren't very good in the first place. And then once those eyes dilate, you know, keeping the front sight post clear is nearly impossible. And, uh, you know, and the best you can do is just is kind of hope for that um, process to line up once. And, uh, and I, you know, you look at, uh, like I, I think, you know, people like Wyatt Earp and uh, Doc Holliday, very fascinating characters because they weren't um, exceptionally fast gunfighters and they weren't exceptionally no, well known for their um, uh, competency with a firearm. But what they did... Uh, possessed was either you know a very probably sociopaths they just didn't get rattled and they would you know hold the gun out use the front sight post and and line up a shot and take it you know you have to be able to get out of your own head um kind of master your body and and you know pr- apply the fundamentals like your life depended on it because you know at this for this story it does and make those hits and uh and and for training if you're if you're if you're not completely stressed out in one manner or the other you're not really training you're, you're just practicing. You're just practicing. You're not training for an, an actual scenario. You're just, uh, you're, you're out farting around a little bit. It's interesting because you, you talk about two complementary things. One is, is absolutely fundamentally drilling the basics, right? And, and, and being able to execute those basics under a high stress situation. The other thing that you're talking about is the culture of the unit that, that is accountability to one another and, and to the unit itself to constantly attack your weaknesses and, and to create a culture of, of driving towards perfection. It, it strikes me that those two kind of came together for you. Um, yeah. And I, you know, uh, even as a, as a force recon Marine, that was the, the same culture, actually probably more rabid. That place is, uh, very aggressive with it. And, you know, to be there, have your peers demand perfection of you. Um, and then to have relevant, um, well thought out training, and then you know to be a professional yourself. I mean, you can't help but end up with something pretty special at the end of that. It seems though that it's very easy to decide that you've mastered the basics, and it's it's very easy to avoid uncomfortability in interpersonal relationships because you know I, I know Earl isn't practicing this, but like I don't want to have the awkward conversation. How do you how do you prevent that from I, occurring in a unit? I think. Uh, I mean, it's it's always going to be uncomfortable um, at first, and then it's it's the manner that it's delivered. You know, it, if and you can tell, you know, when, if somebody's picking at you uh, in a malicious manner, like that's how it comes off. But if somebody is is being humble and like, you know, hey, you know, the stopwatch doesn't lie, the target doesn't lie, um, you're not doing well. 
Um, and I think I know what's wrong. Maybe they're trying to help you. Maybe they can't. You know, if it's up here, a lot of times they're like, I can do this, but I'm not there where I can teach you. I'm just telling you, you're not there. Uh, so, you know, be back here tomorrow. And then, uh, you know, something that always kept me humble also um, is, you know, right after I became a Force Recon Marine, you know, and, you know, being qualified as an 0321 coming from the infantry, huge deal. Uh, I got airborne wings. I've been to SEER school. And, uh, and I walk in and, and my uh, first team sergeant, Pat Sterling, you know, he sat me down. The whole team's gone. And he's, he's like, he's lauding my accomplishments. And he's like, you know, you graduated ARS? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, SEER and jump school? Like, it's a big deal. And I was like, yeah. you know, my head's, you know, this big. And he's like, that's the bare minimum to even walk through that door. <laughs> like you are the bare minimum. I will even accept that I'm like comes in here and, and like drinks water in my presence. So like, so now what are you going to do? Like, why should I keep you? And uh, for me, that was like, man, he took the wind right out of my sails. And uh, I was like, well, yeah, why am I going to be here? And that, I was like, okay, so I'm not special anymore. I was special before I walked in this door and now I have to hold myself to a higher standard and, I'm looking at the unit to see the, what guys are good at that I'm uh, not, and it's everything, and, uh, and I just uh, you know rapidly attack that, and uh, I think that that conversation kind of stopped me because it's a two-way street. You need somebody to be bold enough to tell you you're not meeting the standard, and then you got to be humble enough to to take that, um, you know, and not don't take it as a personal attack. You're not good. Get good. It's interesting that one of the things that you said is that that the you know you talked about stopwatches and scores. And things that are objectively measurable. Do you think it's essential that that you know you are driving objective standards that then you know because if I say well I don't I don't like the way you sing, that's a that's a <laughs> difficult yeah. thing. No. It's very subjective. But if I go hey you know it took you forty five seconds it's supposed to take you fifteen. That, I mean that's an easy one because like if you don't know that like you're not trying very hard. But you know there's other things especially uh, for you know how you're giving commands uh, to a room. Um, you know, especially the job we have, they, they have the, uh, sleepovers. You'll go into a room and sometimes, uh, it'll be empty and sometimes there'll be, you know, 30, 40 guys in there. And we're like, okay, rehearsing these commands. And you're like, Hey, that's not intimidating. You don't, I don't feel like you're owning the room. I think you're the way you're delivering it. I feel like is, uh, inviting violence. Um, and then you got the other guy that's like, Oh, way over the top. And I'm like, Hey, you're, you're screaming like a maniac. That's that's almost as bad as as this weakness. You're kind of adding adding a, uh, an, a, a like stress to the room. Like we don't need them panicking that we're going to murder them all. We want them to understand uh, that we are in command of the situation competently. And that's a you know like have that conversation. How you're standing, like you, you know you look scared. Like that's that's not like I didn't feel intimidated. I felt like you were intimidated. And, uh, you know, and, and most of the time people's body language is, is, you know, they are like, well, I was intimidated. It was terrifying, <laughs> but like, okay, well don't stand like that. You know, stand, uh, like this, this is how you were looking and, and, you know, subjective things, um, like that. Like, and I, I can tell like when somebody's in placing a, uh, an explosive, how competent they are, they can lie to me. They can even like, yep, I nailed it. It went off, but you know, you're sitting there messing with it and your hands are, are doing the, you know, the, like, I don't know what to do with my hand stuff. And I'm like, you're, you need to rehearse this more because obviously you got it right this one time, but I know, and you know, uh, that, that, uh, you were nervous right, to a, a, a huge extent. 
Like, let's go practice that until you're not nervous. And uh, I mean, you can lie about it. Like, well, it's because it was cold. That's why, you know. And I'm like, well, I don't. Maybe you're the only one that knows. But that looked dumb to me. So it's just a constant drive towards yeah. excellence in everything. In everything, yeah. Why, you know, I don't think anybody wants to write a book about how I did pretty good at some stuff, you know. And nobody's going to read that. Like Tiger Woods gets to write a book. He nailed it. So why wouldn't you want to master these these things? And especially, you know, in the, the military and law enforcement community, like not only does your own life um, hang in the balance, somebody else's life hangs in the balance. And, uh, I, you know, that was always been my uh, uh, kind of thing. My, my uh, Before you go off the battlefield, you could get killed. That's bad. But if you get somebody killed, especially somebody you care about because you didn't want to train hard, and you got to carry that forever. And I've, I've seen that eat at people, either uh, because it's true or because they think it's true. So, uh, you know, I also decided that at the end of the day, when I go to bed at night, I'm going to go to bed fine because uh, when my friends do get killed, I know that there was nothing else I could have done. I, I gave everything I did on the battlefield. I gave everything in training. And this is the profession we're in. And that's, that's just what happens. And uh, if you can't say that, um, you're just putting yourself up for one bad event to, to ruin two lives. So initially you were given Silver Star, which was then upgraded to the Congressional Medal of Honor, which is obviously the highest honor that our nation bestows upon warriors. What does is, what is the Medal of Honor mean to you? I haven't really figured that out yet. Uh, I've always admired uh, Medal of Honor recipients. Uh, I've read their stories my, my entire career, even before I joined the military. I've always been... Um, um, just profoundly interested in like those types of men. Like this situation was, uh, you know, so bad. And then he rose to this occasion. It's just always fascinated me. So to be honored with it myself, you know, I, I, I don't know what it means to me. I think, uh, for me, obviously to, uh, to have the, be honored by the nation was a profound thing. But I think, uh, for, you know, what really affected me the most was my, my peers, you know, when men like, you know, Tony Bell and Mark Colbert, are uh, you know giving me accolades and telling me I that I exceeded the standard, you know, and those those are guys I always you know drove to myself to emulate to be half as good of, and to to have them you know there when it happened you know you know clapping and uh, at me was 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 huge you know you're you're having having your heroes uh, worship you is is a, a huge paradigm shift that's very uncomfortable. Yeah, it, it's interesting that it, you know interacting with with so many warriors throughout my career it's it's always interesting to me how the people that receive the highest honors are usually so humble about it and and often find themselves wondering you know why me or or why not somebody else um it's, it's almost like it's it, it takes that humility to reach the level that you were able to reach yeah i think yeah, probably yeah but you know it's hard it's hard not to be humble when um you know, I wasn't the best gunfighter that was there. I was the best gunfighter that didn't get shot in the first five seconds of the battle. Um, you know, so like for me to, to like, I was the only person that could have accomplished those tasks is, is not true. You know, Drew and, and Mark Colbert were, um, you know, equally proficient at, at those things. And, uh, you know, it's like, it's like the only reason that I, w that I was able to be, uh, you know, receive those accolades is because I didn't get shot right away. They did. Um, and no doubt in my mind that if the, the those had been reversed, if I'd gotten hit right away, you know, Drew would have stepped in and and, um, and filled that breach, or or Chief would have 
um, shaken that off and, and been the guy uh, and, and to receive that award. I, I know that's true. But I think also you had to be able to rise to the occasion and you were. Yep. Well, sink to high level of training. You know, I didn't rise to the occasion. I, I, uh, I, luckily, I had a, a high bar set for me that I grasped onto. You know, as as the everything was kind of falling apart, like I had a really strong foundation, foundation better than theirs. You know, I always I love telling soldiers, uh, like, you know, you're you're not as good as me, but your training is is the best and it's relevant. So when you if you have to go on the battlefield, you know, you know, go on with your head up high and, and that confidence that you you are going to be the the best man on the battlefield. I think that's a unique thing. That uh, we get to say as as Americans that where whatever room I am, I'm I'm probably the best at this thing. You know, one of the things, Earl, outside of everything that we've talked about today in doing uh, research and and reading about you, is one of the things that was um, that I saw included in your bio was that you um, put a lot in there about your family. And my perspective is um, that of all the great things that you um, have done professionally. And some of the great things that you um, bring to the the table, humility-wise, I really liked um, reading things that spliced into your professional accomplishments in your career. You outlined this is when I met my wife. This is where she's from. This is when we got married. This is when my daughter was born. This is when my son was born. And seeing those things in there, I really appreciated that about you. I would imagine, you know, never have. Uh, never having served, I don't know this for a fact, but I do see a lot of similarities in the people that I know from the military um, community as well as in the law enforcement community. And there's a lot of guys who, who really get it right professionally. There's a lot of guys who might get it right personally, and there's not a lot of guys that can yeah. build both in there. And John and I have a mutual friend um, in Sid Hale, and, and I touched on him this morning and, and some of the things that he taught me about where some of those things line up for both is really something that's changed, changed my life. It's driven me to be a better person. Um, so I don't know you personally in, in that regard, but I, I thought it was unique. I read a lot of people's bios and the things that I hadn't seen a whole lot of people that, that bring that in there. So I thought that was um, really cool uh, to be able to see that and to see how you interact um, a little bit in that regard is, is something that's really great too. And something I just, that's worth mentioning for the people who will end up listening to this and being able to find that balance away from your professional life. And you touched on it too, with your language school and picking out where is it that your wife wanted to live yeah. and this is what you're going to do and being able to keep that, um, that balance together, man. So I, I think that's really, really cool to see just an, that's, yeah, just an always, observation. No, you know. I think it's true. And I always, we don't, uh, we don't, we don't recruit, um, young men. We, we recruit mothers of young men because that's that's the that's who has the say. Like I think about joining the army, if the mom's not convinced, it's a good idea. They're not coming, and then you know by keeping a guy, like most of the time he wants to stay. If if his wife doesn't think it's worth it, or if 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 she feels like there's a, the paradigm is is way out of whack, where the the work is not of value enough to to explain why he's not home, you know they're, you're going to lose that guy, and uh, you know and I I taken my wife right to the edge several times. <laughs> <laughs> she's she's not shy so she's like hey this is like I signed up for adversity but this is not it and uh you know I have to go and you know find that work life balance and, and turn it back a notch it's good it's a good thing to learn one last question winning the medal of honors probably had you go to a lot of different events and 
probably get to meet a lot of people. Who's the coolest person that you've met since you've uh, won the award at going to some of these events? And Or maybe one of the most impressive or that to you, to you, you personally, one of the people that you enjoyed meeting so, the most. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Um, I got a single one out, but... Uh, you know, especially growing up reading uh, Medal of Honor narratives, when I went to the Medal of Honor convention and I walked into the room and I'm looking at like all the legends from the Marine Corps, from the Army, from the like, Navy, Air Force, and you see all these guys that I've been reading about and I'm in a room with them and they're trying to buy me a beer. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very unique club. Yep, and I'm also the new guy in the club, so they were like, "So you have to buy the beer." Yeah, they're like, "Hey, actually, there's this, there's this crappy stuff we have to do around here, and you're the, you're the guy that's in charge of it now." So I'm like, <laughs> right back at the bottom of a population, <laughs> uh, building the humility, man. <laughs> yeah, Earl, on behalf of a nation that is grateful for the service you provided, thank you. Pleasure. It's it's very easy for us to forget these kinds of stories, and it's very easy for people that are not in this community to think, well, how bad can it be? And I think that events like this show us not only how bad it can be, but the amazing level that people can rise to. And, and as a country, we appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catotraining.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catotraining.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.